And since 1999, I've been doing intentional inner ministry. They kind of groomed me, mentored me, trained me, taught me how to, uh, to teach other interim pastors and how to do presentations like what I'm going to do today. I share that so if anything goes wrong, they can get the blame. Um, so, so again, what they shared with me, there's not much change since then, was actually not their material. It came from a fellow named Lauren Mead who helped start the Alban Institute. Lauren Mead did this almost 50 years ago. And so 50 years, there has been a body of work and people who are teaching interims, helping interim churches. In fact, I just got back last night at midnight. Uh, it was supposed to be a lot earlier, but you know how planes go, from Las Vegas, where I was at a national conference of the Interim Ministry Network, a whole group of people that are not just all Baptist, where we mingle and share ideas and fellowship, and it, and it was a very, very, very good time. So there's a history to this, and what I'm going to share right now is not necessarily anything about your church. It's about every church. And so I know a little bit about your history. Uh, Dave has actually come through the training. You might know that, and I, I foresee him eventually jumping in and helping us do interim church work. So uh, this is about every church. It's a generic presentation. If I step on any of your toes, it's accidental. Um, and if you want to groan out loud or laugh out loud, that's perfectly fine when I, when I do that. So let's start at closure, because we're going to talk about each of these points which are a timeline of an interim church. And when closure happens, so we're skipping way ahead there, thanks, Kevin. Uh, when closure happens, usually there is a kind of a panic in the church. And I really like Kevin's voice in, in what he said. We don't need to panic. And yet there is. And part of that is because there's often people in the church who are like, praise God, the pastor left. I've been praying for him to leave for years. And finally, so, so how many of you would, no, I won't ask that question. <laughs> But, but then you can imagine the pendulum swings, and there's an equal and opposite group that are like, what are we going to do? The pastor left. He took the Holy Spirit. We might as well just close the doors. We're dead. In an average, healthy congregation, 5 to 10% of the congregation are in either one of those camps. Um, I'm going to have trouble with this this whole time, so you all just kind of go like that when it starts to fall off. So if your church is normal, though, then 80-something percent... Thank you. We, we do this all the time. Okay. Well. <laughs> yeah. And okay. Does it, I was going to say, <laughs> does it make me look younger? Um, so usually 80% of the church is in the final two groups. Most of them are what we call the realist. Pastors come and go. That's the life cycle of the church. Let's just move on. And then the fourth group of people, they don't even know that your pastor has left, and they won't know at this party until Christmas. Uh, but because there's different camps, there creates kind of a panic. There, there's often good people who say, God has spoken to me, I know what we should do, and they start operating behind the scenes, calling people, trying to you know, get their way done during the interim. I sense that you have a strong, healthy trust in your leadership, they have started a process of looking at what we should do. So I, I just trust that will continue to be what happens as you decide together what the Lord's will is for you. So we move on to direction finding. Direction finding is what most churches do that are congregational or polity like Baptist churches. So two things happen to find your direction. One is you call an interim pastor. Uh, the other is you put together a search committee. I'm an interim pastor, so let me talk about that for a minute. This has been my life since 99. 
I want to let you know that there are scoundrels out there who want to be your interim pastor. Some of them are knowingly scoundrels, and some of them are ignorantly scoundrels. The knowing ones just want to come in here because they need a job. They want to come in, they want to take your church and change it to be a church like they want a pastor, even though that may have nothing to do with your roots. Be very, very careful. Be afraid. But there's others who think they're helping churches because they come to a church during the interim and they preach their file of sugar stick sermons. Now, a sugar stick sermon is a sermon you know it works anywhere, everywhere, anytime. I don't need to rehearse it. If you were a guest in a church and the pastor said, oh, we have a guest preacher. Would you like to pass, preach? You know, oh, sure, I can do that. Uh, to be your interim pastor, I have to have one good trial sermon. To be your next pastor, I have to have three. You know, one that I send on a DVD, one I preach in my own pulpit when the search committee comes, and one that I preach in front of the church. But the interim pastors are often people who, maybe they're, and I'm not categorizing all people like this, but there's a lot. Maybe they're retired ministers, maybe they're in denominational positions, maybe they're professors. And all they do is preach their sermons. In fact, they have a little marker in the calendar year, and whenever they start an interim, they'll start preaching from that marker and just preach the same sermons to every church they go to with no regard to what your needs are. Now, you will say, we got the best preaching we've ever had, so much better than our last pastor, and that's all fine. But they don't help the church with its issues. Now, part of that is not just the pastor's fault. It's because that's been our tradition for 400 years. That's what churches say either out loud or instinctively. You know, come, preach to us, love us, but leave us alone. Don't mess with us. And so churches go through the interim period without ever looking at what they ought to look at. And one of my interims made up this phrase, and I love it. He says, so you mean the interim time should be doing the next guy a favor? Yes, exactly. Uh, don't, don't just tread water. Don't just float. Just, don't just stagnate. Keep going, but also go forward with purpose. So, interim pastor. Second thing, though, is you need to put together a search committee. Anybody here on the search committee for Dave? Anybody in the church? I mean, is, are any of those people still here? Okay, so maybe one. So, again, it's been a long time, and this is a highly transient you know, area, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Anybody ever had any experience in a pastor search committee anywhere at any time? Okay, that brings up a lot of hands. Okay, so you got some experience here. Uh, let me say a couple of things about that. One is, even though you have a lot of experience, if those people raising their hands have been here a while, that doesn't mean they would know what they're doing if you put them on the search committee. Your search committee needs to be trained. The single biggest problem I see in churches that lose a pastor is that their search committee just jumps in and starts operating, looking for the next pastor without a clue what they should be doing. And later on, if you want to, I can tell you horror story after horror story after horror story of churches that said, we don't need any help. Now, most of them also go on to say, we do this every other year. We have so much experience, we don't need any help. So, uh, <laughs> and you're kind of going, what? Uh, but, but let me also say, and those people that raise their hands, again, you can kind of be my accountability partner on this. Because like most of my ministry friends, we've never been on a search committee. We're always on the opposite side of the table. Uh, I can only tell you what search committee members have told me. And that is, it is the toughest ministry task they've ever done in their lives. 
the burden of the future of the church weighs on their shoulders. And you can say, they should give that to Jesus. You know? But no, they toss and turn because they're human and they recognize if we mess up, yikes. And so I've had a guy tell me you know, 30% of his income while he sold insurance went down the year he was chair of search committee. They cannot do it on their own. They cannot do it in their own strength. Not only do they need to be trained, but they need to be spiritual and stay spiritually healthy throughout, and that will only happen if the church is behind them, supporting them, praying for them on a continual, real basis. But once you get those two things done, your tension goes down. Oh, we have an interim pastor. We have a search committee. We have somebody in the pulpit every Sunday. We're looking for a pastor. But then it starts going back up. But he's not the real pastor. We didn't find a, an interim in, or a real pastor in two months. You know, where this is going into the fifth, sixth, seventh month now. So it starts increasing. And so that's one of the reasons why people start kind of dropping out. They drop out if you don't have consistency. They drop out if you don't have a good interim preacher. They drop out because we don't have a real pastor, so I can take a holiday. And they drop out because there's tension. So how do you prevent that? Well, you prevent that, we'll talk about that later, but by moving on. Direction finding. We've got those two things going, now we move on. And we're, we're trying to clarify identity. For most churches in a traditional interim, that means that everybody gets a survey. There's a hundred things on this survey. Would you just check the top five? What do you want in our next pastor? These are all the duties that he could possibly do. And everybody pretty much will agree that our next pastor needs to be a good preacher. That's exactly right. That's what I would put. I mean, some people say something else, but 95% of the people say good preacher. I agree. But then those other four things, somebody has checked everything, you know. Some, I mean, the search committee gets that back and says, our church wants somebody who can do all of this. They want Jesus. And Jesus is not available. You shouldn't say that in church, but you know what I mean. So, and so what they do is they just toss the surveys aside and they look for the best preacher they can find. And that's a bad way to call your next pastor because that's one duty. And that means they'll call the next pastor based on some lightning bolt sermon that's a sugar stick that you really don't know how well the guy can preach week to week. But we have to move on. Okay, so what do you do next? How long have I been holding that upside down? Um, We do the search. The search, this is what will look like in your church. Whether you like it or not, the word is going to be getting out that your pastor is gone. It will be in the Baptist standard unless it already has been. Uh, I haven't seen it. I look at that, so I'm pretty sure it hasn't been. It will be on a search, on a church, a pastorless church list on a website, churchlist.info, if you want to see that, whether you like it or not. Um, it probably will be, I, I haven't looked, but Colin Baptist Association, probably most associations do on their website, have a list of pastorless churches. Pray for these churches. But there's people out there, they need a job or they need to move, or, and they know to look at these places, and so you're going to get 150 resumes easily. Kevin, have you got any resumes yet? We've already got names. You already got names, okay, but yeah, so... Most of the time, this early in the process, those names are horrible. And in fact, 80% of what you'll get will be horrible. It will be people that don't have the same roots as you have, know nothing about Baptists, nothing about Texas. It's just, it will just blow the search committee's mind. What handwritten? I mean, it'll just be crazy. But those people know that you're looking, that you're without a pastor. 
Again, some of them will say, I'll be your renter, but they want to worm their way into the pastorate. Uh, they need a bigger church, and they know how much money your income, because that, that'll be published somewhere. They know how big your staff is. They just know this will give me a raise, because that's how Baptist churches get a raise. You move to a bigger church. Uh, so your search committee will separate all these bad resumes out. That takes some time. That takes some doing. And now they have a smaller group, and they will ask for uh, DVDs or websites or however they can listen to a sermon. They'll separate some out. They'll contact references on those resumes. They'll separate out. So every process, they're narrowing it down to a smaller and smaller group. They'll maybe send out a survey and a questionnaire to these people. They'll narrow it down. They'll start having serious conversations with the top two or three over the phone. And if they decide to, maybe there's just one, or maybe they'll go ahead with those two or three. They'll interview the, the wives. They'll, they'll meet face-to-face. They keep narrowing it down, narrowing it down, until finally somebody rises to the top, and they say, we think you're the guy. And he says, I think you're the church. And if God seems to be in it on both sides, then they'll move on, not just search, but to negotiation, where they'll talk about what are the duties, what are the needs of the church, what, what are we really looking for? And of course, they're going to talk about this, and that's very important. And again, if your search committee's been trained, they'll know not to wait till that minute to figure out how much they can pay somebody. Um, although a very significant church that I helped recently called me and said, We're in a mess. Our, our church search committee has, call, has asked a guy to come in view of a call and has offered him about twice the amount of money that we paid the last pastor, and we don't, we don't know how we're going to pay that. And they told us that's not up to us, that's up to the finance committee to figure it out. And I was going, there's an example of a group that didn't get trained. Um, but anyway, they, they will work it out, and, and then you will move into this next bullet point, the call. And again, the call in your church might look something like this. Saturday morning, brunch. Everybody meets together. Everybody gets to eat except for the pastor because he's shaking all your hands like I did when you came in. He's meeting you. You get to test him. You know, do you remember our names? Yes, I do, Howard. Every single name after you I'm not so sure about. But, uh, <laughs> and then he'll be introduced by the search committee. Two weeks earlier, you already got his bio, so you've you know, done your, your background checks on your own and everything. But his wife will get up. She'll share her testimony. He will share his testimony. Then you go into a Q&A. The Q&A will be something like, you know, Pastor, can you explain to us premillennial dispensationalism? according to the Left Behind novel and movie series, because I watched that thing with Nicolas Cage last year, and it was horrible, but it's really got me confused. Yeah. Uh, Pastor, when I grew up in Sherman, Texas, we went door-to-door, 5.30 on Tuesday afternoons, and knocked on every community door. You know, do you believe in doing something like that? Because that's how we built our church in Sherman back in the 1960s. Pastor, well, this will go on and on until the search committee chair says, Time out. We need to make sure that our pastoral candidate is well-rested for tomorrow, so we're going to give him the rest of the day off. And he and his family are going with all the elders and deacons uh, to Kevin's backyard swimming pool for an afternoon of relaxation. And the pastor's wife will lean over, I'm not putting on a swimsuit. Which is to say that's not relaxing. It's also not a bad idea. But then Sunday, he will come again, greet you as you come in for Sunday school, and then he will stand in your pulpit and he will preach his third best sugar stick sermon. You will then bring him over here with his family. You will immediately go into business. The motion comes from a committee with a second. Is there any discussion? There will be about this much. I think he can, he can lead us. Uh, ready to vote? Okay, here's the ballot. Circle yes or no. 
Call the candidate back in and you'll say, by 98 to 2%, we have called you to be our next pastor. And you will jump to your feet spontaneously, give him this big ovation, and he will say, thank you, let me go home. I need to give a two weeks notice. I need a couple weeks to get down here. I'd like a couple weeks off. So six weeks from today, I will start as your new pastor. Now here's a question for you. Why did you vote yes? Because you will vote yes, except for certain honorary people. Um, why will you vote that? <laughs> I can just sense you're a safe guy to pick on. So, yeah. uh, why, do, why will you vote yes? What will be the basis of supporting this pastor search committee's recommendation after one sermon? Desperate. Let's get out of this interim for Pete's sakes. What's that? Trusting the committee. If they've done a good process, they've been transparent. I don't mean about all the candidate names, but they've kept you informed, you believe in them, then you'll vote to support them. What else? Okay, I'll give you some options. What's that? Do you like him? I mean, when you met him that day, did he have a firm handshake? Did he look you in the eye? Was he relational? What about his sermon? If his sermon is a stinker, would you vote for him? What, what about, is his wife cute enough? Were the kids well-behaved enough? Um, of course, you, again, you went on Facebook and Google and everything you could to find out all you could beyond what the search committee said about him. Well, I'm going to tell you something, and this is very crass. Excuse me. Uh, This will not sound spiritual at all. But if you really think about it and you say, I'm going to pray about it and I'm going to ask the Lord to tell me how to vote, then I would bless you for that Sunday school answer. But you, just like everybody else who just answered with other things, will actually not know how to vote. You will vote yes with your fingers crossed, not knowing, and just hope and pray it works out. Because we have this kind of rushed honeymoon. I mean, the search committee got to know the guy. They had that privilege. But how do you really know somebody and trust them? You will call a person to be your paid professional preacher. But he will not be your pastor until months and months later when he has earned your trust and has proven himself worthy of that trust. So this is a scary proposition. It's, again, our history. I don't know how to to escape it. But it's also, I think more difficult now than it has ever been in church history to call the right pastor. And I'll give you some illustrations. Right now, we have a lack of pastoral candidates, even though you'll get 150 resumes. Okay, I went to Southwestern from 1980 to 1990. I also went to kindergarten for two years, but that's another story. Um, So it took me a while. But while I was there, Christianity Today said Southwestern Seminary was not only the biggest, but it was the best seminary in the world. I would say you could challenge both of those, but let's just talk about the biggest. I went there. We parked on both sides of the street. We parked way out in the neighborhoods because the parking lots were totally full. We were cranking out preacher boys. We were cranking out an army to supply the pulpits of our churches. That's just no longer true. If you go on there campus today, there are no parking signs on every single street to force you into the parking lots. And at the busiest time of the day, the parking lots are so empty, I don't know how my alma mater keeps going. Now, some other alternatives have opened up, though, haven't they? I mean, there's, there's two Baptist seminaries connected to the BGCT. They're phenomenal seminaries. Truett 
and Longsden. Truett at Baylor. Can I say Baylor these days? Uh, in Waco and Longsden and Abilene and Hardin-Simmons. But like Southwestern or any other seminary you go to today, if you ask the students how many of you want to serve in a church, less than half want to serve in a church. If you ask how many of you want to be a pastor, 8% are looking at the pastorate. When I finished high school, I started feeling a call to ministry. I went to college. I confirmed it. I went immediately into seminary, and I have been following what I believed was a lifelong call in the ministry since. But the 8% are full of people who say, I really don't know. I might give pastoring a chance. It's a whole different world out there. Um, also, Southwestern is the only school that I know that's done that about three years ago, they said that they've traced their MDiv, that's Master of Divinity, pastoral students, and a majority of them are out of ministry for life within five years. If you ask pastors' wives and children, how do you feel about it? Ninety-something percent of them say, I wish our spouse wasn't a pastor. And I think that's one of the reasons why so few people are interested. They, they know how tough it is. They know what the, the conflict s- stories are. It's a scary proposition. So maybe God's in this. He, maybe he's doing something else. But now there's people like my age or maybe 10 years younger in their 40s and their 50s who are saying, you know, I've been a lawyer. I've been a, a farmer. I've been a plumber. I've been a teacher. I feel God calling me to the ministry. And if their spouse says, yeah, okay, then they'll pursue it, but they won't go to seminary. I mean, they won't get any training. They'll just jump in, and and churches will say, well, this is great. We've got somebody who's a mature person, and they have financial business sense. Never had a pastor with that before. That's a rarity. But that pastor makes the same greenhorn mistakes I made at 23 in my first church because they've never pastored before. And so the short-tenured pastor, according to Clay Price, our statistician, average pastor stays four years. That's not good for a church. That's not good for the pastor's family. Some of that's stair-stepping, but a lot of it is not. A lot of it is it's just not working out. That's what my office sees all the time. And the call that I get from pastors is, help me get out of here. That pastor search committee lied to me. I hear that almost weekly. Those are the words that are used. And when I ask about it, the pastor search committee never told overt lies. They just hid information that would have been nice for the search candidate to know. But the search committee, having never talked about it, just intuitively knew, don't mention you know what or nobody will come. So behind this whole thing that I'm sharing with you is if you do traditional interim or intentional interim or somewhere in between, the idea is that what our philosophy is, our goal is, it's, it's, it's to help pastors and churches talk more openly and candidly about the situations at the church. But it's also saying to the church, is it possible that God wants you to do something in between here so that you take care of some of those issues we used to hide and what you don't take care of, you're open and honest with the next candidate because that won't necessarily drive him away, but that will give him the ability to make an informed decision in accepting the call. From closure to startup in a traditional interim takes a year. So just get ready for that. There are some health experts in church life that say you ought to have one month of interim for every year a pastor served. So how many months would that be? Yeah, You know what? I'll tell you this. That would not be too long for you. I'm not sentencing to you, that, that, that's your, but I just want you to know it's going to take a while. So this process can work. It has worked. I think it's becoming more and more difficult to 
work right in this day and age. So what would an alternative be? That's intentional inter-ministry. And that's where we get to this, this big circle. Now, the big circle really, we'll talk about the little circles in a minute, but it has three points to it. The first thing is that you need to know about intentional interim ministry is that it means you need to call an intentional interim pastor. So that's a difference because a traditional interim, churches call professors part-time, they call denominational workers part-time, they call retired people part-time, and usually all they do is preach. But we're talking about do you need more help than that? If you need more help than that, then an intentional interim pastor has certain qualifications. One is they are already a seasoned minister. So I get calls from DBU students. I'm a minister in training. Give me some experience. Help me go to an interim church. And I have to explain to them, no, our philosophy is that an interim church doesn't need the least. They need the most experienced ministers. And and so just to get into our training, you already have to be seasoned. They go through an application process, and then they go through some very serious training. The training requires a three-day event that introduces you to interim ministry. Then it requires a five-day event where we go through all the nuts and bolts of intentional interim ministry. And then it requires five more months of field education. Uh, Most pastors, when they finish, they tell me this was like going to a Dumin class. This is the most significant. They say what I said when I went through it. I wish I had had this training when I started ministry. It would have saved me a lot of hard knocks. It's it's very serious stuff. I'll tell you one quick story about Levi Price. Levi was the pastor at First El Paso. Huge impact, not just on that church, but on that city. But he left to go to Truett Seminary to become their first professor of pastoral care. And now he's sitting in my class. And I'm thinking, what can I teach Levi Price? Oh, my word. When we finished the training and he's given me permission to tell this story, he said to me, Carl, I've been doing interim since I got to Truett. I didn't know what I should have and could have been doing. This is going to change my ministry. Just because you've pastored doesn't mean you know how to interim pastor. So after they complete the training, they also commit to us to be part of our professional group, to to do continuing education, and to have a peer review after every intentional interim that they do. Serious, serious stuff. That interim pastor would not come in and take over your church. That would be ridiculous. He won't know you, your culture. That would be arrogant. That would be ignorant. But what he will do is he'll come with his training, with his skill set, with his personality, with his giftedness, and he can pastor you. He can do as much as you covenant with him to do of the pastor's duties uh, from probably half-time to full-time. And he can help release some of the load that happens in churches when we don't ask an interim to help with pastoral duties. But his main job will be to coach the second part of this equation, which is the transition team. Now, the transition team will not be your elders, your deacons, uh, church council. It won't be anything that exists now. It will be a brand new group. You will not put it together until after the interim gets here so that he can help lead in this process because it helps him to get to know the church and who's who by being part of this process. But you would eventually put together a transition team that looks like a microcosm of the church. It might just be five, six people, something like that. But you'd want evenly divided in gender. You'd want people of all ages. You wouldn't have youth or children, but you'd sure have people that have the heart for uh, and the love for maybe already are working with youth and children. You also would have people maybe on opposite sides of whatever the elephants are in the room that I don't know about. I'll give you an illustration. I, I see a guitar up here. I don't see any drums. What's wrong? 
<laughs> but when I go to a church and there's drums on the platform, will I see those over in the sanctuary? Yes. Okay. So when I see that, I know at some point in time they went boom, you know, and they knocked heads over that issue. And, and a lot of times in churches, that's still an issue. And so we say, if you're, if you're in a battle over worship wars, then you need people on both sides of that issue. If, if you don't, then you have a big section of the congregation that's, they don't consider the, the transition team to represent where they're coming from, to understand their heart. But you'll have people that are wise, uh, people who are, are knowledgeable. You can have one without the other. Um, but people who are spiritual and who, who are wise, you can have one without the other. Get to my, my point there. Uh, but this group doesn't take over the church. This group has one job, to lead you as a congregation through what we'll call a self-study. To look at all the areas where you need to fix things, you need to change things, you need to help things out before the next pastor comes. And all those things can be put in one of these little circles. So the first thing is your intentional interim pastor. The second thing is you put together a transition team. Uh, that transition team will probably meet weekly for about 90 minutes. They will not meet in secrecy, but they will meet in confidentiality. Uh, they will meet planning how do we bring our church together to talk about these issues and to decide together what we need to do. Now, again, I don't know your church well enough to know what the issues are, except for one, and that one is that you just lost a beloved, long-tenured pastor. I also know that you had a little tension before he left over the plans, and that's why I'm here. There was a plan for succession that didn't, uh, you know, succeed, and so, so now you lost some people and you're here. But you can put just about any issue in one of these five focus points, but it's not a program. A program, you do everything the same way, church after church after church. This is a process. So the beauty of it is that your transition team has to work with that interim to plan how to address these issues in a way that will work for Willowbend. It, it will never work for another church before or after. This is unique and particular to you. And I think that's the beauty of it. Now, I, I have to take these in some order, but you can do them in whatever order makes sense to you. But let me talk about them in the, this order. I'll start with heritage. We call these focus points. The first focus point I'm going to talk about heritage is to talk about your history. How did you get to be who you are today? I know Kevin told me you were the first church planted Baptist church in this county. And that's, that's history. You know, I don't know that that impacts you much today, but there was a time that the church turned a corner and made some decisions. How many of you were here with the pastor before Dave was here? All right, so we have some people. But most of you weren't. Two-thirds of you, at least, were not here. And, and so maybe that history and how it impacts you today needs to kind of be rehearsed. I, I don't know. I do know that you probably, like every other church I've ever heard of, need to talk about the pastor leaving. Because there's often some tension there, even if the pastor died, about why did he really leave? I mean, seriously, whether the pastor did something, you know, as a promotion, moved to a bigger church, a denominational position, you know, or whether he had a scandal, a scandal and left. There's all sorts of things going through the congregation, and you need to kind of let go of those things. The biggest issue I'm sure is here is that you need to let go of Dave or your next pastor will not be your pastor. 
And the way you know this are when you're still calling Dave to come back and do weddings. You're still calling Dave to come back and do funerals. You're still calling Dave about why you don't like the new pastor. Uh, that scenario in a situation like yours, I, w- I, would, I no science to this, but I would say roughly speaking, 90% of churches in your situation will call a man who will be what we call the unintentional interim. You call him in, he tries to help you change, turn some corners, you crucify him, he leaves the ministry, the church loses half of its members, and if you don't talk about how we need to start letting go emotionally, and this may be difficult for you to hear because you just had your big celebration, you know, last Sunday, you, you, you love this guy, and, and that's good, you don't want to stop that or doing that, but you need to let go. I, I guess it would be kind of like, this, may, this is a horrible illustration, but I don't, you, you give me a better one when we're done. But it's like if you were married and you got a divorce and you remarried, but you were still seeing your ex. It's a very uncomfortable situation. How are you going to navigate the waters in the future? Uh, There's different ways. There's no one way to do that, but you do need to talk about it. So heritage is talking about uh, things. Sometimes it's celebration. Let's bring back hope. Sometimes it's, well, all the times it's let's talk about where we're hurting and how do we recover from that. Let's move on. So let's talk about leadership. Leadership is about your staff. Your staff, I'm sorry, some are in the room. They are probably the most uncomfortable people in the church, at least if they have any sense. Because the elephant in the room for them is, will we survive the calling of a new pastor? When I started uh, college, I was a mentor uh, to a pastor in Waco, Texas, and he told me very proudly, whenever a church calls me, I demand the right to call my own staff. And, and the search committee always says, absolutely. Well, that was in the 1980s. Today, a church search committee would tell that pastor, we called the staff, we expect you to work with them. And they'll say, absolutely. But that's not the real world. The real world is that he would come, he would start to meet with them. If it doesn't work out, they're not a match, or he has a friend, and behind the scenes, he'll start saying, you know, we're not really a good team. I I think you need to resign and move on, and that will leak out, and that will divide your church. So one of the things that you might do during the interim period is say, if if you have staff that you want to keep, how do we make sure they're keepable? But if you have staff that you need to admit that's just not working, please address that during the interim and don't call a new pastor like so many churches do and say, by the way, you need to get rid of so-and-so. Now, I'm talking about the person that mows the lawn, works in the office, ministry staff, anybody that draws a salary. The second the pastor starts saying, you need to move on, he has shot himself in the foot and he may be moving on a whole lot sooner than he thought. So if there's issues, the interim is the time to deal with them. But here's the thing. I'm not just talking in leadership about your staff. I'm talking about everybody in leadership. I don't know. That may be everybody in this room. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you're on a committee, you're an elder, then how do we address those things when when a new pastor comes, when he'll be fearful for his job, his salary, his providing for his family, if he tries to address the problems in the church? The safe time to do that is during the interim. So I'll give you a couple illustrations. I go to a church, and they have a name on every Sunday school room. It's not a Bible name. It's the person name. You know, Mrs. John Smith. You know, she owns that classroom. Now, Mrs. John Smith's family founded the church 100 years ago. Mrs. John is the matriarch of the church. Mrs. John has been teaching 7th grade Sunday school for 40-something years. 
This is a big-sized church in a big-sized community. They have a giant children's program. They usually have about 30 kids in 6th grade that move into 7th grade, and within three weeks, they're down to 5 or 6. And everybody in the church knows Mrs. John Smith is killing the youth department. Her Sunday school and her attitude and her abilities are so horrible, but nobody has dared address it. Well, that church, I don't know how all this worked behind the scenes because I wasn't there, but that church figured something out. And some people went to, after the transition team processed it, they didn't bring this before the whole church, but they went to John Smith and said, you know, we never have enough volunteers in the nursery rocking babies. We have all sorts of people that would take this class. Would you consider sacrificing this class to go rock babies in the nursery? And she did. And they said two weeks later, she said, this first time I've been happy in this church in 40 years. <laughs> so, so that's the transition team has to work through this. Deacons are a huge problem. Deacons battling over power with the pastor. But if you ask those deacons in the church, tell me about how you became a deacon, they'll say, well, they voted me to be a deacon. I said, I don't know what to do. And the deacon said, well, come to a meeting. You'll find out. So I found out for the last 20 years that deacons go to a meeting once a month. You know, it, it, it may be that your leaders, both staff and lay leaders, simply need to be equipped, simply need some help. And, and maybe that would take care of those issues or maybe move to another position. Talking about leadership is talking about how do we keep our church healthy. Because if your leadership is not healthy, your church won't be healthy. And that leads us to how do we make decisions. And behind the whole intentional interim ministry process is the understanding of what we call the priesthood of the believer. That if you are a Christian born again, the Holy Spirit's inside of you, then you have direct access to the throne of God. And you can talk to God directly and you can hear from God directly. That doesn't have to go through your leaders, through your ministers, through the ordained. And so if we're all in this together, then we all need to help make the decisions together which in an elder structure like your church has or a hierarchy structure like the catholic church where you know pope can say this you learn real fast that that kind of authority doesn't matter if the people don't trust you and believe in you and follow you that it really is about all of us being in this together so we often look at our uh, governing documents our decision making process uh, how to give everybody a chance to have input leadership all right thank you sir connection who are you connected to outside of these walls you're baptist you belong you believe like you give money to why i guarantee you if you don't talk about that then you're likely to call a pastor who doesn't have those same connections and will someday say to you, let's just drop them. Let's quit giving money. Let's quit believing. Let's quit practicing like this. It happens all the time. And some of you in the church would say, that's fine with us. And some of you would say, over my dead body. And so the next thing you know, you're in trouble. Those three areas can help form what we would call a church profile. Where you could share with pastoral candidates, this is how we got here. This is how we, we make decisions. Uh, this is who you're going to have to work with. This is who we belong to and what we believe like. Do you feel called to come to a church like this? Or are you going to come and try to change us? Which leads very quickly into mission, which is not the missions, foreign home, state missions, but it is the purpose of your church. 
where so oftentimes we call an interim pastor and he, he sits here while we just look for the next pastor and we don't do anything until we call that next pastor and then we ask him, what are we supposed to be doing? What's God's will for our church? And he tells you and you say, nah. If you knew us, you wouldn't have suggested that. And so he doesn't work out. I think that's a big reason why there's a lot of church hopping. But back to the priesthood of the believers, why, why do you wait for a pastor to do that? The loss of a pastor means the door is open for you to start saying, it's time to relook at us. It's time to redecide what our main ministry focuses are going to be. And if we can do that right now as a congregational body of believers, we could use that to create a pastor profile to find a pastor who will help lead us in that same direction we discovered during the interim, and he will help us fine-tune it until God calls us in a different direction. And I would say that probably 2% of churches ever really know what they're doing to begin with. I mean, it's just, it's just awful out there. So that becomes your pastor profile, and if you've done those four, then the future means let's move on. Let's put together a search committee. Let's tell them here's a pastor profile, a church profile. Go find a pastor who matches these, not the best preacher you can find. And if you do that, then from closure to startup, on average, it will take you 18 months. That's six months more than a traditional interim. Is it worth your while to spend six extra months looking at yourself, putting yourself in order, finding out exactly what you need in the next pastor before you release the search committee? If you do this, how much does it cost? Well, either way, I would say pay the pastor, interim pastor, what he's worth. Uh, if he works full-time, pay him what you pay a pastor. If he works half-time, pay him half of what you pay a pastor. Two-thirds time, pay him two-thirds. So that's fair to you. That's fair to the pastor. It keeps it within your budget. Does the intentional interim work? I am privileged to go around the state and interview transition teams as part of the peer review process. I have never been to a church that said this was a total waste of time. We actually have statistics for some blind, you know, surveys that we've done. Uh, we got some uh, grant money, uh, uh, a group that we work with did this for us. If you take 10 transition team members, eight of them will say, this intentional inner ministry helped our church significantly, and that help has continued into the next pastor's tenure. One of them will say it's all right, and one of them will say it was a waste of time. If you decide to do this, what's next? And then you can answer questions in the last two minutes that we have. Um, the next thing would be that if you as a congregation decide this is what you want to do, I would give whoever does the search. Um, is, would that be the elders or would you, Kevin, do you know? Or not, not sure, but you would figure out, do you need to create a search team or is there an existing team that can do that? I would give them the names, the resume, and any information that I know of, every candidate. We don't appoint. You have to do your search. But it's probably 10, 12 people max. So within four to six weeks, if they hit the ground running, you would have an interim pastor on the board here ready to lead you through the intentional interim process. All right, that's what I needed to know to share with you. We've got about six, seven minutes. What questions can I answer? And if you're an elder that was with me earlier and there's something I didn't mention you know I need to say, then please speak up. How do you approach when an interim comes in to keep communicating 
Well, normally certain things happen. So you start with the percentage, but I didn't hear a percentage question in there. But well, the percentage would be of what when you go through the eighteen months, what percentage of that pastor, how long do you stay? Well, normally an intentional interim pastor works less than full time, and a lot of that is because they're either already in a full time position or the retirees who don't want to work full-time. So I would say on average, well, let me not say on average, but let me just say 50% is probably the minimal that you could do because 50% would probably be meeting the needs of your pulpit, working with the transition team, and that's it. So if you need him to do more, help with administration, supervise staff, those sort of things, now we're pushing up two-thirds, probably three-fourths to 80% is what most intentional interims do. And then you use the other 20% to cover their expenses. So like if somebody was driving you know, 50 miles one way, that's 100 miles every round trip, you would reimburse their mileage to do that. Well, the main thing I want you know, our body to know is we had a pastor for 17 years. That's almost unheard of now. Mm-hmm. And he truly was a pastor, and he mm-hmm. reached out to almost everybody in this body. Mm-hmm. So I think what we've got to relate to the body is that's going to be a little bit different now until we go to that full-time pastor. Yeah, and, and what you would do, I think, is your search committee would have kind of two lists. One is if you're going to be our intentional interim, this is ex- absolutely you have to do these things. Now, here's another list. These are what we hope you'll be able to do. But those are negotiable, and so if there's some things that the interim pastor, because of time restrictions, can't do, then you have to figure out how are we going to cover those. Will we create a new ministry body, hire another part-time interim to do that stuff? Most churches don't do that. Uh, Many churches just say, hey, it's just not going to get done during the interim. Um, But you'll have to figure that out. I, I would caution you, don't put those duties on your existing staff's back. Because they already have duties. You don't want to hurt that. You don't want to burn them out. But you also don't want to cause a conflict of interest when the next pastor comes over who's better at doing that duty. Which, which happens often. Um, did that answer your question? Yes. All right, what else? Yes, ma'am. If you were to do the intentional interim, yeah, how many search committees are there? So if you were to do the traditional interim, a church might have one search committee. First they find the interim, and then they move on and find the full-time pastor. If you do the intentional interim, you'd have a search committee to find the interim, and then that's all they would do. And you don't look for a pastor till you get to the future. That's 9 to 12 months down the road. And by then, the church might change enough that wouldn't be the right committee, you know. So it, that would be two, two committees. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Does the interim ever become the full-time pastor? Did I plant that question? Did somebody? Uh, that's a great question. We, we have our interims, when they finish the training, then they want to be part of our group, whether it's traditional or intentional interim that they do. They sign a covenant with us that they will sign a covenant with you that says they cannot under any circumstance become your pastor. And the reason for that is because they feel called to be interims if they're on our list. So they need to be able to say that's, that's a true calling in my life at this point in time. They also need to be able to come and step on your toes. And I don't mean be ugly, but when they push you into areas that you're uncomfortable with, 
at some point you say, you know, they did their duty, but it is kind of good that they leave now so we can have a fresh start. If your new pastor stepped on your toes, he might be out in an ugly way. The interim, he gets away with it uh, because you know he's going. So, wonderful question. What else? All right. Is it time for kimchi? Uh, I pastored a church for 10 years, and we sold half, half of our property to a Korean church, and we partnered every week. They had lunch together. just blew me away. It was such a wonderful fellowship, and they had kimchi, so I learned to eat kimchi. And the first time I had it, they all gathered around me when I took my first bite, and I said, you know, that's kind of like boiled cabbage. It smells pretty bad, but it actually doesn't taste all that bad. <laughs> and then I started sweating in my socks, and it just kind of came up, and, I, and they all clapped. You know, we got the, the Anglo pastor, you know, because it was the hottest stuff I'd ever had in my life. Uh, thank you for letting me come. I do not get bonus points or anything like that. If you decide one way or other, do what God tells you to do.